just on nine past nine on two double x 98.3 fm welcome to behind the lines and today behind the lines we've got Zena richardson specialty costumer and stylist in the canadian film and television industry and kelly donovan local ethical clothing activist leading the conversation on ethical and sustainable fashion after working in the mainstream fashion industry for many years kelly saw the devastating impact fashion manufacturing had on the people working in it and on our environment and left to find to found PurePod, a label that cares just as much about its impact on humans as it does on the earth and also nina gabor is a personal stylist and advocates for sustainability in the fashion industry and, and nina has a master's degree in international development and hosts clothes swap and styling workshops through her clothes swap and style canberra initiative and over the phone summer edwards a community development practitioner and founder of social impact stories a consulting firm that assists social enterprises to capture understand learn from and communicate their social impact stories she works in australia and internationally with ngos and recently addressed the plight of bees impacted by toxic pesticides when pollinating crops used by the fashion industry uh, good morning Zena. Good morning, Clayton. Um, after having worked two and a half decades in film and television in Canada in costuming, I was exposed to a lot of waste in that industry, um, which made me quite concerned about how we were handling it. And I would notice that we would have, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of garments that would be worn once or not at all. And then at the end of production, they would actually be thrown away um, into the bin. And it was actually more economical for the production to do that than it was to store them or donate them because they would have to actually hire people and pay them wages to organize and donating to various charities. So one of the things I started doing was to try and um, set up a few things to get uh, charities that would work with us and we could donate to them. H&M did a really good job of allowing us to donate clothes and rag waste. So if you did a post-apocalyptic show and all the clothes are shredded, um, they would actually take all the rags from us and put them through recycling and they would give us a voucher to come back and shop in their store for every bag of clothes we donated. So it was a really, really good incentive. And over the time, I found the industry definitely was becoming more aware of the need to recycle and reduce and, and reuse and find more economical ways um, in how it was handling Products. So that got me really interested in moving from fast fashion, um, you know, sort of the, the waste and the toxic effect it's had on our planet and finding out more about it. And one of the things um, I was doing preparing for the show was just looking at some of the stats that the World Economic Forum put out and the Environmental Protection Agency about the extent of the pollution uh, that fast fashion has caused on our planet. And just to give you an idea, like last year alone, there was almost 16 million tons of textile clothing waste uh, that was produced and that generally people uh, now are buying three times as many garments as they were in the 1960s. So that's 80 billion tonnes more of clothing being consumed. Um, the ladies in the studio with me here today um, have had first-hand um, experience of some of this working in fast fashion, and I'd love to hear uh, perhaps from Kelly about some of your experience moving from fast fashion into sustainable fashion. Uh, well, I worked in Melbourne um, for many years uh, designing mostly children's wear for different department stores. So in that time, it actually wasn't classed as fast mm -hmm. fashion fashion because still a lot of things were made onshore in Australia. And then over the 90s and then into the 2000s, that's when a lot of stuff went overseas. And then bigger companies started um, producing 
like larger and larger amounts because obviously the cost of the clothing was cheaper to make in you know different third world countries and they took over um, the textile industries in uh, globally so basically as fast fashion grew the cost of the products reduced and then anyone in any industry around the world couldn't compete with those prices you know from in Australia to you know in Africa to anywhere the local industry couldn't compete because things were getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and obviously there was more and more and more waste and obviously with that waste um, people were basically in a slave labor um, situation working in some of these factories as well because they were on such low wages um, and working in dangerous conditions mm-hmm. as well. Now I had heard Kelly that it's not just in third world countries that we've got that issue around slave labor and garment production mm-hmm. um, that it was actually happening even here in Canberra where uh, people were being given batch work and they were working out of garages from their homes and being paid an example I was given uh, by a source was ten dollars per bundle so not ten dollars per garment wow. but ten dollars per bundle and a bundle could be you know 20 30 garments um, to complete and that the um, proprietors who were doing this were actually quite wealthy ah, so, I didn't I haven't yeah, actually heard of it that's in a, camera. sort of an underground industry um, yep. sort of I guess yep. it's not really a sweatshop but it's somebody's garage they're working out of well it is a sweatshop yeah, really yeah. Um, what well, happens everywhere all around mm-hmm. the globe and what what was happening when I was uh, working in Melbourne what was actually happening was the companies would give the work to the factory and then the factory would then give it to an outworker and that outworker may have been you know obviously they'd been probably been able to speak English but then they would give it to their friend who may not have been able to speak English didn't know their rights didn't know you know what they should be paid properly to be working in this industry and it kept going down the line so it, obviously each person it got worse and worse and worse and what they were being paid was worse and worse but it also comes back to the consumer too so if something's cheap in the store whether it's clothes whether it's shoes whether it's homewares or whatever if it's really cheap someone along that supply chain is paying the cost of that mm-hmm. with their wages with their with their health and well-being with their livelihoods mm-hmm. Yeah. And I understand too that for some of the workers, they have to be away from their families for up until a year. That um, the location of the factory where they're working makes it impossible for them to live near their families or to visit their families. And often the factories don't permit them leave uh, other than once a year to visit their families. So you're yeah. also breaking up communities as well yeah. um, by removing the workers and isolating them into, um, you know, sort of fast fashion production. Yeah. Um, so what? Yeah, there was one lady that I met um, who was. Um, she told us that basically she was taken to another country. She thought she was going to be working in where her, you know, her country where she came from, but she was actually taken to another country. She, her passport was taken off her, and she was working and living in a fast fashion factory. But the living conditions were horrific. And, you know, the line of machinists that she, you know, all the different lines of machinists in the factory, they'd have like a couple of toilet cards at the top of the line and a security guard. So if someone in, in your line of in the factory wanted to go to the toilet, they would have to then take the card, sign off, get taken by the guard to the toilet. So if there was someone else in that line, mm-hmm. that you know, whether they were pregnant or they had 
problems, you know, they, they wouldn't have been able to go to the toilet. But And they also couldn't go home. So they were on such low wages that the wages probably just paid for some of their family back home, but they never had enough wages mm -hmm. to be able to set themselves free mm -hmm. to then go back home. So they were under... And, that, and they often get physically abused mm -hmm. and sexually abused and, you know, it's horrendous. So I guess what we're trying to do is um, really make people aware about where their clothes are coming from and the cost of those clothes, and not just environmentally, but on communities mm -hmm. and the livelihood and well-being of, of the manufacturers and the labourers, um, including the labourers who are, are working on the crops. Mm. Um, and some of those crops, as we know, are highly uh, toxic for pesticide spraying, and the labourers have become quite ill. Mm. Um, from exposure to the pesticides. I know we have um, Summer on the line here who's been working on the plight of bees in relation to um, exposure to toxic pesticides. Summer, would you like to tell us a little bit about your work there? Oh, um, yeah, so this um, really came about from an article that Kelly actually requested that I write to her. Um, I've been writing about in-depth coverage of environmental issues in the sustainable fashion industry or in the fashion industry for um, almost seven, uh, six years now um, and so I'm really known globally for the, uh, really detailed um, fact-driven coverage of how our shopping habits are really impacting on the environment and um, that's how I come to know Kelly and because her recent collection wanted to highlight the plight of the bees, she asked me to investigate specifically what are the impacts on, on bee populations and this really does come down to um, the fact that so many clothing are made with conventional um, textile crops such as cotton um, but even other textiles such as hemp and linen, if not manufactured, if not grown organically, can use really harmful um, pesticides that um, are damaging to bee populations as well. Um, but um, the recent conversation in the global um, sustainable fashion community is really starting to talk about regenerative regenerative fibres and regenerative fashion because there is a there's a push from big industry to say that um, synthetic fabrics are a good sustainable alternative because they're recyclable and because they're not grown on land but these um, fabrics are really made from um, extractive industries so to say that they're a, a good sustainable option is really a bit of a fallacy um, and so some of the pushback from sustainable fashion community is saying well look we need to think about the whole life cycle impact of a textile and that it is possible to grow textiles in a regenerative way that actually benefits um, the land that they're grown on and, and that can biodegrade back to the land. And so it is possible for crops to be grown in a way that are really beneficial to the environment, including to bee populations specifically. Um, so, for example, there's some research going on in northern New South Wales that's examining whether organic hemp crops can actually have medicinal properties for bees um, because hemp is a really great food source for bees. Um, 
and that's really interesting. And then also crops like cotton, when grown well um, and grown organically, can be a source of food for bees and they can also, bees can work hand-in-hand with the textiles to um, to increase yield. Um, so just considering the whole kind of life cycle impact of the textile, where it's where it comes from, does it come out of the ground? Um, is it grown? Is it coming from an extractive industry? Is it is it grown in, a, or is it a natural textile that can come from nature and biodegrade? And these these textiles that are really wonderful regenerative textiles are textiles that have been used throughout history. Um, linen, for example, is one of the oldest textiles in the world, and there's archaeological evidence of it from. Um, Egypt and um, very old European civilization, very old Japanese civilization. So these textiles have been around um, for a very long time and we're starting to see that when we consider um, textiles from a whole life cycle point, from a, from a point of how it impacts the soil, how it impacts the air, how it impacts um, on the people who are tending to the crop, um, that we're seeing a return to these textiles that have always been used um, because they mend beautifully and because when when we finally um, are finished with them and can no longer use them anymore, they can be returned to the earth. That's wonderful, Summer. I was reading about um, the fashion industry working with regenerative farming. Is that what you're referring to in yeah, this farming so, practice? Yeah, so it's starting to talk, change the conversation about um, textiles as merely like a um, to consider it more as a circular product. So, so it's a it's a product that comes from the earth. It uh, can be grown in a way that um, actually nourishes the soil and nourishes the earth and nourishes. So, for example, the bee population. If we're considering that hemp is a really great food source for bees, if we grow it organically, it can actually um, benefit the local wildlife as well as provide us with a resource that we need to clothe ourselves. That's um, brilliant, yeah. And that's a very recent conversation um, that's come out really in the last 12 months, I think, mm-hmm. where people are starting to think about, and even things like alpaca and wool fibre can be, when farmed in a way that takes a regenerative approach, can actually pull carbon out of it out of the earth because the um, the manure from the from the animals can actually increase the carbon holding capacity of of the soil because it, the manure is good for the grass um, and so if, as long as overgra- overgrazing isn't used we can start to see that these textiles can be part of a huge environmental solution. Um, and that's a really positive conversation that sort of goes hand in hand with talking about food system as well and moving the food system from an extractive industry to one of that works hand in hand with nature. And the same conversation is starting to happen in fashion, which is really, really wonderful. Yeah, that is. I actually heard um, about the Savoy Institute, which is an NGO that is dedicated to supporting holistic 
land management and regenerative practices specifically focusing on soil health and they've been uh, looking at partnering with some of the larger labels um, to develop a network of farms that they can use as a source of um, natural fibres um, and those include leather, cashmere, wool and cotton. Uh, two of those labels are Patagonia and Prana and what they're looking at doing with regenerative um, organic farming is giving them certification uh, similar to the way that the USDA organic certification process uh, regulates what can be described as organic farming so that these uh, large fashion producers who have partnered with regenerative farming will actually have um, a designation nation um, that they practice regenerative farming so that the consumer when they're buying their products be very aware of this much the same way that you'll see a label in the grocery store for a certified or organic product do you know if anything like that's happening in Australia at this time summer um, nothing major that I've heard of yet um, there is the fiber shed movement I'm not sure if you've heard of them but they started in the US and it's a, a movement for creating a network of fibre producers that um, enable people to, to source local fibre for their um, clothing um, and that's quite well developed in the US um, and they are also looking at, um, I can't remember the exact terms they're using but basically looking at getting a certification for the way that carbon is captured by these farming, these more regenerative farming um, practices. Um, for clothing. So they're looking at that as well and there are affiliated fibre shed networks in Australia, although it's less developed. Um, so we are starting to see that and I think that's really important because the, the organic um, model is really va um, valuable and I really trust it, but at the same time it is still based on a more extractive approach to how we manage resources. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still built on that more linear model of um, um, beginning of life to end of life cycle and it's not thinking about a circular model of how how throughout this whole process are we um, giving back to the resources that we are um, utilising rather than extracting from the resources how can we work in harmony with um, resourcing. Um, I would say that um, on the certification Issue, and I'm sure Kelly can talk a lot more about this as a um, designer and label perspective. But for smaller labels, those certification systems can be prohibitively expensive. So Patagonia is fantastic. It's a global brand, and they have the clout to be able to drive systemic change from that big kind of corporate perspective, and they have a really valuable leadership role to play. And so. So those certification systems can be really valuable for those big corporate global companies. But a lot of smaller labels just simply can't afford to play into all of the certification systems. Um, they might be able to access some, and I know PurePod um, accesses production that's um, got the Global Organic Textile Standard certified and Fairtrade certified, but... Um, to get the entire like other labels to get their entire label certified for all the ethical practices that they put in place, including environmental practices, it's just too expensive for them to gain that certification. And so, I think it's really important when we talk about um, the consumer side that consumers understand that 
they need to start thinking about the things we buy as more of a relationship with the producer and getting to know people behind um, the items that we wear and, and not just clothing but also um, the things we bring into our home. Um, but understanding that small labels can often be doing really fantastic um, leading work in the industry but they, they don't have the size um, in, uh, in order to really display that with an independent certification. Um, but this doesn't mean that they're not doing really good work. And the only way to get around that and to avoid um, greenwashing and to not be duped in marketing hype is to really take the time to get to know um, these brands and get to know um, the people behind them, what their ethics are, and build a trusting relationship. Um, and if we start to consider the clothing purchases we make as something that we're investing in for life or for many, many years, um, it becomes easier to make those decisions because I, I purchase a maximum of five garments a year, usually less, um, when things wear out. And so I have the time to find the brands who are doing work that I really, really trust, um, including social enterprises. So that's my professional background is a social enterprise and NGO space, and including small social enterprises who are doing amazing gender empowerment work in countries overseas but who can't necessarily access um, these certification systems to show that on a broader level and so the only way for us to trust that is to really um, develop relationships and have long conversations with these smaller producers. Well, that's great. Thanks, Summer. So it's really going back to the consumer about educating themselves and um, sourcing out, you know, sustainable labels and maybe some of the smaller labels and exploring that rather than just defaulting to buying from a big box store or, or from a, um, a commercially produced fast fashion label. Because I, I get the sense that once something is out of sight, it's out of mind. So if we're buying something that, um, you know, doesn't last very long, we throw it away or we get tired of it and we want something new and something to replace it and we're creating all of this waste um you know we've got something like the was it 81 pounds of clothing waste per person in australia that's what they throw away every year which amounts to about two billion pounds of textiles ending up in landfills so we've, we've got all of this um garment waste uh, that is being shipped out in trucks and sent to landfills and then those of us who are trying to be more conscientious and, and donate our clothing and hopefully give it to somebody in need um, often realize that a lot of that donated clothing isn't ending up where we intended you know the nicest pieces the best pieces will end up in some of the thrift stores or with some of the charities but the majority of stuff is actually shipped overseas it gets wrapped into enormous plastic bundles um, I think Pakistan is currently the largest importer of used clothes and they have 11% of the world market and then Malaysia has seven um, but like really these countries are now getting to the point of capacity where they can't receive anymore and I do realize that three East African countries actually um, stood up to the garment industry and initiated a ban on being shipped secondhand clothing so um, even though we feel that by donating and exporting used clothes extends their life cycle they're still going back into landfill and as you mentioned not just with the farming practices but um, with now like waste 
um, fabric waste garments, a lot of them are manufactured um, from things that are not going to decompose for several hundred years, and that's going back into the earth again. So, uh, as you discussed, like finding um, ways to not just create regenerative farming, but to maybe reduce the waste of garments um, in their life cycle. I know that um, Nina's been doing a lot of work with recycled fashion and how people can um, incorporate that into their style wardrobes. Would you like to share a bit about what you're doing, Nina? Yeah, sure. Um, it's really interesting you started off with talking about how the clothes that are not sold in op shops are sent to developing countries for aid. So this is exactly how, um, well, literally how I got into eco-styling. So... Um, Although I grew up in the States, when I was a teenager, we lived in Nigeria, which is in West Africa. It's a developing country. And I, growing up um, in my household, we were really into classical film, you know, movies from 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that's particularly how, where my love for style um, and beautiful clothing came in. Um, and I'm very much into vintage clothing from that era. So one of my favorite movies at the time, Gone with the Wind, um, there was an upcycled dress in that film. It's, I don't know if anyone's seen the film, but it was a green dress that was upcycled from a curtain, velvet curtain. Now, going back to when I was about 15, I remember seeing a replica of that dress in the um, window of an op shop. And for me, I was completely blown away. It was like seeing a celebrity in, in real life for the first time. And it drew me into the op shop. So I went in, I tried on this dress, and in that op shop, there were a lot of um, contemporary clothes as well. So I was mixing, you know, these really old clothes from the 50s with contemporary clothes and just creating my own unique style. And at the time, I was like, you know, a typical teenage girl. I wanted to, you know, hang with the popular girls in high school who were wearing, you know, designer trends. And this completely um, made me lose interest in wanting to be like everybody else, wanting to dress like everybody else, wanting to um, copy the latest fashion trends. So, because I was creating my own unique look. And what I also realized, and from then on, I actually was never interested in following trends or conventional retail. And this was different. I realized this was very different from my peers. What I also realized at the time was that, being that this was in Africa, those were the clothes that were, you know, sent from the Western countries that weren't being sold. And I also noticed that because those clothes were there and they were so cheap, people were no longer buying the traditional attire, the beautiful um, Nigerian costume that was produced by local tailors, or even the clothes, they were produced by individuals themselves, because a lot of women could sew, a lot of people could sew, men too. And I saw this as a problem, even though this is many, many years ago, before fast fashion became a thing. I saw, I noticed this was a big problem. A lot of the tailors were unemployed and they were shutting up shop because clothes were so cheap. And in addition to that, what people, I don't know, many people don't realize that in those countries, they don't do landfill. Those clothes literally end up as mountains of trash mixed with regular trash. And they're all over residential areas and it reeks. And the, the runoff, you know, when it rains and everything, it literally runs off into the local um, water bodies, you know, and these are within residential areas where people live. So it's a very, very direct impact. And, you know, as you, you mentioned, Zena, um, these clothes are, a lot of them are synthetic and so they don't decompose and it absolutely reeks. I can still remember how bad it smelled. 
So I saw this as a problem even as a teenager, but I didn't know what to do. I thought this is horrendous. And I was conflicted between I love these clothes, you know, being able to mix up things. But at the same time, this is creating a problem in this culture. Um, so I've been eco styling since then. I've only been primarily been shopping at op shops. And I remember back in 2015, there was a film that came, documentary that came out called The True Cost. And I highly recommend everybody should see that it exposes a lot of these issues we're talking about today um, behind the fashion industry. And then that made me realize that, oh, it's not just at the finish line that these clothes are creating problems. It's actually during production. In fact, during farming, you know, with the, with the pesticides and the toxic chemicals and dyes being used in production, I thought, okay, something has to be done about this. People need to know more about this. We need to find a solution because it's absolutely unacceptable. Um, so I took what I'd been doing since I was a teenager, which is, you know, reusing, recycling clothes and styling and just making it look, you know, really fun and beautiful and um, started to, you know, create awareness through social media, Instagram, showing people that you can look absolutely stylish, beautiful, elegant, however you want to look using secondhand clothes and clothes produced ethically, you know, because people tend to have this mindset that, oh, anything from an op shop, you know, it's your grandmother's clothes, it's dirty, they smell, they're horrible clothes. And I'm actually saying, no, um, mm -hmm. look at me, I'm bright, colorful peacock, mm -hmm. and this is all from secondhand. So secondhand doesn't necessarily just have to be op shops, it could be clothes swaps, it could be um, garage sales, uh, secondhand markets, so many different ways of doing it. Um, but one thing as well, you know, we talked about donating to op shops. People don't real, you know, you, you said that a lot of it gets shipped off. But before it gets shipped off, op shops in Australia currently are spending about $13 million um, just sorting through clothes. $13 million for a charity. This is money that could be going to their causes, not sorting out people's junk. And it's 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 really alarming because, you know, clothes are so cheap. It's not just clothes, but, you know, furniture, everything is so cheap now. People buy, buy, buy. They don't use, dump it at an op shop, um, and they're having to sort through it. And I think there needs to be a lot more awareness about what can and can't go to an op shop. And in addition to the things that can't go to an op shop, maybe it would be great if we had a system where um, not only are people aware, but things that can't be sold in an op shop, where do they go? You know, because that's something that we don't have at the moment, you know. Um, of course, there, each city has, you know, little, and it's usually private, um, it might be a private shop or a private recycling center. For example, we have the mm -hmm. Green Shed in, in Canberra, but, you know, who can sort things out. But there's also a market for uh, companies that are able to use, you know, synthetic textiles in very creative ways to create products. So not for clothing, but I don't know, it could be for bricks or just different Under sorts of carpet laying, and, carpet laying mm -hmm. and lots of different things Claims. like that. So I think I think that's something that um, it would be fantastic was whether it's private industry or government um, would look into having those kind of systems because there's so much we can do um, with all of this waste that so it doesn't have to end up in a landfill Plus you know it creates more jobs new yeah jobs, absolutely new industries absolutely yeah. new industries and new jobs so what i do at the moment is um i host clothes swaps and with clothes swaps it's a great way to um you know circular fashion preventing people as much as possible from buying buying new um and just keeping those clothes because we have so many clothes so much clothes right now that um 
I believe that we don't need to, well, it's impossible to say that, but we don't really need to produce a lot more synthetic clothing. I think that if we're buying new, it should be from ethical labels like Pure Pod, for example, um, who are producing, you know, with natural fibers, organic. Um, and as Summer mentioned, you know, it's that sort of um, circular, regenerative cradle to cradle. A cradle to cradle style of, 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 of production. Um, but with what we already have at the moment, I think it's we can just keep that within a circular system because we have so much of it. With the clothes swaps, it's a way to bring what you don't have because with us consumers, particularly a lot of women, we buy stuff to make ourselves feel good. We don't use it or sometimes you buy online, it doesn't fit. So you bring those clothes to an op shop, uh, sorry, to a clothes swap and then um, basically your trash is somebody else's treasure. So somebody else picks up stuff, your things, and to them it's absolutely things that they can use that they love and then they also deposit things that they don't no longer use and it just keeps that cycle flowing and what i would love is for in canberra for example every suburb um act libraries for for instance schools um communities you know mom's groups to host regular clothes swaps particularly schools because children go through you know they grow and get go through clothes so fast at churches as well to host cl regular clothes swaps, you know, one or two every month to keep that cycle going. Um, and that's what I would love to see. I have a platform, you know, clothes swap and style. Um, I could use that to promote the clothes swaps and it would be great if the ACT government got in on it as well and let it just be the way in Canberra that we, we, um, we acquire and consume clothing. And through that and people, it, what it also does is engages people in these issues and these conversations. Cause when I host clothes swaps at the beginning, I, I talk about the issues within the fashion industry that people typically don't know about and they're shocked they're like oh i never thought about that oh i buy cheap clothes but i never understood why they were so cheap i just thought it was great um so it's a way of engaging the mainstream about these issues because i make them fun i make it like a party and everybody loves a party right um so it's a way of engaging people in mainstream who typically wouldn't hear this information and probably wouldn't on their own do research about organic clothing you know because um, everybody has a busy lifestyle generally so through that i think we can engage more people and the more people you engage the more conversations you have about these issues the more likely we are to come across solutions because there are solutions out there everyone's scratching their head but because we don't have enough people who are engaged we don't have a lot of, there are um small businesses um who do or who are doing amazing things but you don't hear about them and through more people being engaged, um, these small businesses, organizations are, are more known, um, they get more funding and so on. And then we can come across solutions um, because one of the things that's happening in our industry, ethical, sustainable fashion at the moment is that, you know, we have events and things, but it's a lot of the same people who come to events. You know, it's a small community and we want to grow that. And I think, how do we grow that? It's through doing things that, you know, would appeal to mainstream who are the biggest fast fashion consumers and then get them involved and see how cool it is to to engage in a circular fashion system or something that's um, really exciting that they typically wouldn't do. That's fantastic. I was reading, Nina, that um, the secondhand clothing market is actually growing faster right now than traditional mm -hmm. um, retail apparel. Yes. So that they're predicting that within 10 years, secondhand will be larger than yeah. fast fashion yeah so a lot Thankfully, of yeah, yeah a lot of the um manufacturers right now are looking at ways to actually get involved 
in that market because they see that is going to be for them sustainable for their labels. I know that we talked about um, getting consumers to do their research and to hopefully if they're going to buy new, buy from um, a sustainable manufacturer and somebody who's using ethical practices. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I hear a lot is um, the cost sometimes of trying to purchase ethically produced garments can be prohibitive. Mm -hmm. So uh, approaching this, as you said, of, of a way of looking at secondhand clothes as desirable items, as valuable items, yeah. and, and being able to purchase clothes for your children, for your family affordably yeah. um, w without contributing to the problem. Sure. Um, one of the things that we did in film was instead of um, when we had to clothe two to three hundred extras um, in contemporary clothing, we would go to the cheapest big box store we could find. Usually in North America it was Walmart yeah. <laughs> or something of that equivalent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would buy these clothes and they would be worn once, maybe twice, maybe not at all. Mm -hmm. And at the end they were either um, thrown out or sometimes given away but most often they were put into storage yeah. and then they were abandoned in some warehouse somewhere because it wasn't worth the storage fees and the next production that would come into that space would find all these boxes yeah. of clothes that had been Throw packed up <laughs> and had been written off as an insurance claim yeah. by the production. Yeah. Um, so what we started doing then was to do our shopping for the extras and the background performers at secondhand clothing yeah. uh, retailers mm -hmm. um, in North America. One of the big ones is Value Village, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is quite a large organization, yeah. which would give us the volume that we needed. Yeah. And that way we were purchasing secondhand clothes. Yeah. They were, um, the, the, the cost to us was the laundering of the secondhand clothes yeah. so that, um, you know, to make sure they were clean for people. That probably was the contribution that wasn't particularly sustainable because a lot of them would have been synthetic fibers mm. and another uh, laundering of synthetic fibers produces a lot of yes. microfibers that go into the environment. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing too that a lot of the manufacturers of washing machines now are looking at creating um, something within the uh, the machine itself that's yep. going to catch, catch a lot of these the, fibers yeah. and it's yeah. going to be um, mandatory soon for machines mm -hmm. to be produced yeah. um, with this that doesn't allow the waste to go into our water system anymore. Yeah, there are, oh. there are I think, some bags that you can uh, put your clothes in before you wash mm -hmm. that do capture that and it's so fantastic to hear that uh, washing machine manufacturers are trying to produce models that um, capture those microfibers. I just wanted to touch on something you said regarding um, the cost of the, a lot of these ethically produced clothes mm -hmm. being prohibitive. Mm -hmm. I think it's when you look at things like cost per wear. Mm -hmm. So if you buy a lot of, you know, let's say fast fashion label, you buy something and it is cheap and you mm -hmm. think, okay, yeah, that's great benefit for me. And it absolutely is, you know, bargain. But you're talking, a lot of them are poorly made. They're made of very um, cheap fabrics, polyester mm -hmm. and just even just looking at them, they're horrendous. Um, the fabric's horrendous and it's put together and they're not made to last. They're made to be literally, uh, the, you know, with the throwaway culture, they're made to be wear once, throw away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those, when you wear that, you buy them, you wash them the first time mm -hmm. and it just disintegrates. The right. color changes. And so it's really, you, you, the question is, is it really worth it? Especially when you now realize the cost of the environment and the cost of human mm -hmm. life. Is it really worth buying a dress, <clears throat> excuse me, brand new for $10, is it really, really worth it, mm -hmm. knowing that a human being was paid almost nothing for that and probably a slave? Mm -hmm. um, and then looking at the ethical, ethically made dress, mm -hmm. um, they're made of natural fabrics, so um, less 
um, cost to the environment. You know that everyone along the line was paid, along the supply chain was paid fairly. But in addition to that, for your own personal benefit, um, you're going to likely use that for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. So one of the reasons I love vintage from, you know, clothes from the 40s, 50s and 60s and 30s as well, is that they last. I mean, I have so many dresses from the 50s and they are in perfect condition. Mm. I have stuff that I've bought, uh, you know, that I've got, well, maybe through an off shop, something that I've gotten with a contemporary label. It doesn't even last that long. Mm. So I think the we need to change how we look at that and we need to change the conversation about ethical clothing being expensive. They're not expensive. If you think about it, they're actually very affordable. If it's going to last you that long mm. and all everything else considered. Um, sorry, I just wanted to throw that in there. No, that's fabulous. Thank you. And I, I see that uh, <laughs> Kelly has a, a point that she'd love to share with us here, please. So when people say that to me about clothing being expensive, if you think of all of the people that have touched that piece of clothing, so from the farmers through to pattern makers, through to sampling, through to mm -hmm. machinists, through to cutters, designers, like all the people, think about dividing that piece of clothing up and each one of those people gets, you know, a cut of, you know, a, a wage or whatever they get from that piece of clothing, plus obviously the the cost of the goods, like the fabrics and the trims and the, everything that goes into that, plus the shipping and all that stuff. It doesn't actually end up being expensive. Mm -hmm. But what fast fashion has done for my industry, and I'm directly being affected by this in my own label, is the... You know, the consumer doesn't see um, the skill set that my industry has anymore. So they just see the dress that's even $100, that's not an expensive dress, as opposed to maybe one of my dresses that might be $250. But, you know, the fast fashion people are making, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of that one style. I might be making... 10, 20, 30, 50, if I'm lucky, 100 of those, that one dress. And it costs me roughly about $1,000 per style before I even start going into manufacturing. So when I'm only making 5, 10, 20, whatever it is, um, and then I sell those dresses, I've still got to cover that $1,000 it costs me to get to that product in time, plus also, you know, not every garment that you make ends up selling full price at proper retail price. Some of them might be either wholesale, so it's half of the price, or some of them might be reduced on a sale. So my full priced garments that I sell have to cover that entire supply chain and that whole product development of that product as well. Plus also, I can guarantee 90% of the time or 95% of the time that my garment will last 100 times longer than something that's made in a really cheap way. Like my fabrics are better. I have a whole cradle-to-cradle -cradle, um, ethic about the way that I produce. So I know that my the way that my products from a farm right through to the finished life cycle of the garment have a, loss, lo a lot lower impact environmentally plus I try to look after as much as I can as a, a little label I try to look after every single person mm -hmm. that's kind of touched my clothing and I kind of figure in a way when I'm actually wrapping an order to send out to a customer 
I think of like all of those people that are being involved and I kind of send this order out, <laughs> you know, thinking that I'm sending, you know, the feeling of the, all of those people to that customer and hoping that when they wear that garment, they actually, you know, respect and feel the whole supply chain because we're, as an industry, we have a huge skill set, um, you know, from a pattern maker to a person that grades the patterns to a person that cuts the clothing to a person that manufactures like they're they're amazing people that have such high skill set and to see clothing being so cheaply made it just you know breaks my heart because i think of how much work like a cheap t-shirt is takes just as long as an expensive t-shirt to make you know just that the, per the person making the cheap t-shirt is probably working in horrendous conditions. Mm -hmm. So if customers and retailers support little brands like mine and, you know, other brands like mine that are, that are doing this around the globe, um, you're actually starting to convert an entire industry. And once upon a time, like my grandma was a tailor in Scotland and she wouldn't touch a piece of cloth if it wasn't a good quality piece of cloth because she didn't want to put her work into making that that garment if it wasn't worth it in in the textile so obviously the people that made those textiles were also really highly skilled at producing a beautiful piece of cloth and then you know someone like my grandma who was a qualified tailor would then produce it into a beautiful garment and you know she used to make my mom and my and my auntie beautiful clothes and i can I'm I'm really sad I don't have a lot of those clothes, but I can guarantee those clothes, like Nina said, would still be around now compared to cheap clothing. And when you go to buy a piece of cheap clothing, I can pretty much say that, you know, if you're always buying cheap clothing, if you sit back and add up the whole year of how much you've spent on cheap clothing, cheap shoes, cheap, you know, all that sort of stuff, add it up at the end of the financial year or at Christmas time, add up how much you've spent and how much of that clothing and everything you still have in your wardrobe. And I can pretty much guarantee if you bought, you know, from people like myself and other people, you would probably buy less, but I can guarantee that you will love and cherish that garment mm -hmm. for, you know, five, ten years or more. Mm -hmm. You'll still have it in your wardrobe. So you know, the cost of the value of wearing that garment a yes. dollar a day or whatever that you wear it will out, um, you know, out um, last, okay. yeah, the, the cheap clothing. Plus also when you're wearing, like I often get stories of people when they wear my clothes, the conversations that I have when they're wearing my clothes mm. with other people and people walking down the street and I get emails like that all the time. It comes the community. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, because people have got to know me and my brand mm. and my ethics and they, lo they love that story, mm. you know, like going to buy from someone at the markets and you go and talk to that mm. ceramic artist or, you know, that artist or the textile artist or whatever. You, you get to know their story and you, you uh, have much more of an attachment to that product and you'll look after that product because once upon a time that's what we used to do like mm -hmm. fast fashion is a modern day problem it was mm -hmm. never you know before say like the 70s really yeah. wasn't such an issue yeah i just wanted to add to that a couple of things um like kelly said i mean we say cheap clothing it's not every 
it's not only the fast the designated fast fashion brands that are doing this okay cheap clothing i know that's a relative relative term but it could be you know your average shopping mall brand that where a dress costs a hundred dollars 150 dollars the problem is still the same um it's not only i just want to put it out there it's not only the retailers that sell dresses for 10 20 30 dollars it's mm. also the retailers that sell dresses for $150. Um, these issues still exist. But um, the other thing I wanted to say, in addition to um, purchasing brand new um, from retail, whether it's that a lot of these shopping mall brands that are really common, they're using toxic chemicals and dyes in the clothes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just damage to the environment that we've been saying. What people don't realize is that those chemicals are still on the clothes when we buy them and they get into the skin. So the skin is the biggest organ of the body. So um, just because we can't physically feel it when it's happening, those chemicals are getting into our bodies. And a lot of the, um, including the pesticides that are used um, and in, in cotton production. And the thing is, a lot of these chemicals have been, research has been done, extensive research, and it's causing infertility in a lot of women. And a lot of them are cancer-causing chemicals as well. So that's something that consumers need to be aware of. Um, And the other thing I can literally, like in the back of my mind, I feel like I can hear uh, some women screaming like, oh, I still can't afford ethical labels. Yes, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I can't afford to spend, you know, I understand that you know everyone needs to be paid along supply chain, but I still can't afford, you know, $200 or whatever it is um, for a dress, even though it's ethically produced. So this is where um, the circular fashion element comes in. And, you know, because I believe there has to be something, there, I believe that there is something for everyone. Um, so, you know, Kelly talked about her, her um, customers have a group um, there is a, fa- a PurePod Facebook group. Um, so a lot of these brands um, do have like groups where you can go and buy secondhand of that particular brand. So that's one way to get those clothes affordably. And, you know, I, earlier I talked about clothes swaps. And a cl- you can literally, if, if you want clothes, um, whether you're a mother with young children or for yourself, literally just host a clothes swap in your own community. And the secret is, be really cheeky about it and host it in the kind of community where you want those clothes, right? So if you want really sort of expensive brands, host it in a suburb or area where typically women have, you know, disposable income to buy the brands that you like, right? That's one way to do it. So there are different ways around it where you don't, you can, you can get those things um, without and not have to spend as much or having to succumb to actually reverting back to the shopping malls and these retailers and buying fast fashion. So there's just different ways of doing it for everyone. You know, there's garage sales. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, like um, markets. There's so many ways to go about it, um, where, which um, fuels the circular economy, sorry, circular fashion, um, without having to really spend if you can't afford to spend too much. Just yeah. coming up to 10 o'clock on 2XX 98.3 FM, you're listening to Behind the Lines. And in the studio, Zena Richardson, specialty costumer and stylist, Kelly Donovan, a local ethical clothing activist, Nina Gabor, a personal stylist advocating for sustainable sustainability in the fashion industry, and over the phone, Summer Edwards, a community development practitioner. And we'll be back shortly, just after the 10 o'clock news. You're up to date with National Radio News.
8 past 10 on 2XX 98.3 FM and you're listening to Behind the Lines and in the studio, Zena Richardson, specialty costumer and stylist, Kelly Donovan, a local ethical local, local ethical clothing activist, Nina Gabor, personal stylist advocating for sustainability in the fashion industry and on the phone, Summer Edwards, a community development practitioner. So we've heard a lot about um, the 
tragedies and the problems of the toxic fashion industry and something positive that's actually come out of some of that negatives is fashion revolution week and i wondered if you ladies could expand upon what fashion revolution week is and um, what events might be going on locally that people could participate in well fashion revolution week started um in a horrific um, factory disaster in bangladesh in 2013 um, so there was a factory in called the Rana Plaza factory and workers were um, forced basically back into a building that was cracking and it was unsafe. So they'd left the day before. So if you see the movie The True Cost, there's a lot of information about um, what actually happened on this horrendous day. It's on Netflix, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And you can actually download it and you can also buy it too. Um and basically the workers were forced back into, you know, sweatshop conditions into this building to finish deadlines for fast fashion. And there were some people that refused to go back into the building as well, which is in the True Cost movie, which is horrendous as well. And basically the building collapsed on them and killed, um, it was about 1,400 people. And there was another 2,500 people um, that were also injured um, so there's some statistics that say there's 1,133 people that died, but there's actually a lot of other information saying that there's actually more people than that. So I, I did a couple of different um, events through Fashion Revolution Day. So what really happened was that happened, and then a whole lot of the industry got together. Um, some amazing people in the UK got together, and they started... Um, an anniversary um, for basically calling it Fashion Revolution Day to make the industry start to look at what was happening behind the scenes of the glossy fashion magazines and the glossy part of the fashion industry to show what was happening to workers and to the environment and all that sort of stuff. And it was just a one-day event on the anniversary and then it's becoming bigger and bigger every single year. So then it went to um, a week event and now they pretty much have events throughout the entire year but generally it's at the end of April April 22nd yeah. to yeah. 28th yeah so they year. they sort of do like a week event around the globe so you can actually jump online to the fashion revolution site um the global one or also onto the Australia one which is um um, Australia and New Zealand and you can see all the different events and you can also host an event yourself if that's something that you're really passionate about as well like a clothes swap or you can um, host like a talk or whatever whatever or you can also show the true cost movie so a couple of years ago um, with the CIT with the fashion students at the CIT um, I did a big art installation of um, white shirts that were given to me to borrow from the Salvation Army in Canberra and they counted out the exact number of white garments for every single person that had passed away in the Rana Plaza factory collapse and we put it on the, this big auditorium where we showed the True Cost movie and we raised a little bit of money um, for a small workshop in Cambodia where we bought them some machinery um, and we showed the True Cost movie and we also had a panel and then I also did another event out at Derry Road where I got as many ethical designers and makers that I could and we held um, a sustainable um, market and then we also had a panel event in the evening um, where we had different people from the industry talking about the issues in the industry and how people 
so that people don't feel overwhelmed, but how they can actually um, start to do things in their own lives as well. So, <clears throat> yeah, um, I thought the thing to mention about I think the Rana Plaza disaster in 2013 is that it was the fourth largest um, incident in the industry. So even though um, it's what's being commemorated. Um, every year, it's shocking to hear that was the fourth largest, not even the worst. And these things happen, you know, factory fires where workers are locked in the building to work. These things happen, sad to say, almost consistently, um, but we just don't hear about it. Um, so it's fantastic that this movement has occurred where people are um, becoming more aware of these issues. So um, going back to what Kelly was saying, I think it's um, people can host events. It could be any kind of event generally to um, spread awareness about um, the unglamorous side of the fashion industry. So this year, um, I'm doing two events. We're doing two events. The first tomorrow, actually, we're having a, an autumn fashion revolution clothes swap. Um, so it's, again, where people can come and bring clothes that they have that are generally good condition um, and sort of gift that to the swap collection pool and then also take back um, stuff that they need. Um, and so this is clothing, accessories, jewelry, bags, and shoes. We're also doing another event on the 28th, which is the Canberra Women in Business and also the Naus Group Clothes Swap. Um, Kelly and I will be there at that one as well, where we'll be talking about, you know, circular fashion, sustainable fashion. Kelly will be talking more about um, this new initiative that she's doing. I'll let her talk about that. Um, as well as, you know, her ethical fashion production. And it'll be sort of a niched clothes swap, particularly for office corporate business attire and also smart casual attire. Um, an opportunity for women to engage in these issues and, and network. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I just wanted to add on to that as well, as well about um, the Rana Plaza incident and fashion revolution that has grown out of that. Um, and as Nina said, we are still seeing these kinds of industrial accidents occurring on a regular basis in developing countries. Um, so there was a big shoe factory fire in the Philippines a few years ago and they, they were actually locked physically with a padlock inside their factory. So when the fire broke out, they could not escape. Um, and this still happens routinely in the fashion industry. But one of the really positive things to come out of the, the terrible tragedy of Rana Plaza is the questioning um, of the fashion industry that we just didn't see. So when I started my blog, um, Tortoise and Lady Grey, almost 60 years ago, sustainable, sustainable fashion was a very, very niche subject. And very few people were writing about it and no one was writing about it in a journalistic depth. And that's what I started my blog to address. And that came out of my own personal experience because in my community development career, I had worked directly with factory workers in China. And although they weren't fashion industry factory workers, the conditions were the same. So I knew firsthand what was going on in these manufacturing um, countries. Um, so sustainable fashion has gone, in, in seven or eight years, sustainable fashion has gone from this obscure term that no one has heard of 
to um, the global awareness that has come from this terrible, terrible tragedy of Rana Plaza, that these conversations are starting to enter the mainstream. And I'm even seeing um, um, bloggers and other online um, sort of personalities who discovered the issues in fast fashion via Rana Plaza and the fashion revolution. And that sparked the curiosity, which has led them down the sustainable fashion route, which has led them to question the food system and how unsustainable and cruel it is, and led people to to go from just being someone who never thought about the impact of what they wear and what they eat to someone who's vegan for ethical and environmental reasons in the space of a year or 18 months. So that that kind of catalyzing effect of something like this is quite incredible. And a lot of people, one of my frustrations is a lot of my network is in the environmental movement, so people who have science qualifications, who work to preserve the environment, who think that fashion is frivolous and they think it it is unimportant. But I have seen um, over the time that I've been a commentator in this um, sector that fashion can really be an entry point for the mainstream, as Nina's discussed, entry point for the mainstream to start to engage with really complex, serious human rights and social issues um, that they never considered as they went about their day-to-day lives. And that is a really incredibly positive thing to come out of these tragedies um, that although we we will always mourn the horrible loss of life, we do have to see the ripple effect of what that is, has led to. And, and it is it is absolutely tragic that these things are still happening and, and we have to, as activists, continue to drive this conversation. But we do need to also take heart in the change that we are seeing and the change in the last eight years has been phenomenal. Can I just add to that? Something that um, there's a great um, thing that Ursula de Castro, who was one of the founders of Fashion Revolution, she was on an interview with Claire Press. So if you ever want to listen to that, um, you can look up Claire Press. Um, she actually said, if people think that they're not part of the fashion revol- fashion industry, if they get out of bed in the morning and they put clothes on their body, they are actually part of fashion so we all like clothing like I don't call myself a fashion designer I call myself a clothing designer because you're actually putting it's one of our main necessities that we need in life like we need shelter we need um, clothes and we need food and water obviously so we need clothing to protect our skin from the elements so anyone that gets out of bed in the morning or even lies in their bed with the sheets and all that sort of stuff someone has actually grown that that fiber they've produced it into you know bed sheets or into clothing or whatever so this is a whole industry that needs to be looked at so the scientists and the people like that that you're talking about summer come bring them to me so i can have a chat to them because we all we all wear clothes and no matter whether it's secondhand or whether it's designer the top designer things or whatever it is or whether you go to target or kmart or wherever it is we're all wearing clothes, so we all need to look at um, where our where our money is going and um, use our money for our voice of 
of change in the industry. Yeah, we have well, a really, the really interesting thing is I, um, uh, about 18 months ago, I gave a talk at the local Green Drinks, um, which is all environmentalists um, and who, are, who just haven't considered these issues. And there was one man in, in my talk, he was, he'd be in his 60s, he said, I'm a climate, climate scientist and you get so depressed when you are constantly working in climate mm-hmm. science because the problems seem so intractable. Yep. And he said, after your like talk... like the clothing industry. <laughs> yeah. But he said, after your talk, I feel so encouraged because I know what I can do to go away and make an impact on these issues. So he, he was saying, like, I never considered the impact of the polar fleece that I wear to work. But now that I know that microfiber pollution is ending up in spring water, not just tap water, but spring water at the source, um, I know that I can make different choices and have an impact. Um, and that's really incredible if you can um, start to see um, consumers just needing that awareness to understand that the personal impact that they can have on a big monolithic industry that is driving change. Yeah, I just wanted to add very quickly um, in terms of impact. Um, and we know, you know, we were talking a lot about conventional retail. However, it's easy to say, okay, just people should stop buying from those brands, but that would create problems on the other end for the garment workers because they desperately need those jobs. So in terms of taking action, what consumers can also do is um, write to those brands, write to the brands where you shop them, all the retail brands. If everybody did this en masse, it just takes just a couple of lines to demand because as consumers, we are we have agency to change this. We absolutely 1000% do. Um, and I think that's what people don't realize as well. Everyone feels disempowered because the problem is so huge. But we write to those brands and ask them for transparency in their supply chains and ask them what they're doing to mitigate all these issues that we, we, we just spoke about today around garment workers, fair wages, um, and the environmental impact. So if everybody did that, they would be forced to change. If you said, I'm not going to buy your clothes anymore until you disclose of your entire process. So that's another action that I think it's important for us to do as well. But like we started our label, um, my partner and I, Sean, in Byron Bay in 2006, basically. That's when I bought our first fabrics. And then we started wholesaling in 2007. When we first started, this conversation was hardly being made. Like I originally did it because I was into the environment and I'd seen what, I, you know, working in the industry in Melbourne, I'd seen lots of um, issues um so it has grown so people that feel like you know that this is all really overwhelming and everything there's massive amounts of things that are now being done like you're hearing about this this um situation everywhere now which is fantastic like i'm going to you know like i just went to legacy summit um in sydney and that was all about this in, entire industry which is happening like obviously fashion revolution is global there's amazing things happening and even the big companies are now looking they've been forced to look at their whole supply chain so there's a lot of really good things happening throughout the world and you know people like yeah patagonia are leading the way um, and lots of other amazing companies are starting to make big changes and that will filter right through to that little 
you know, farmer that's on, on the land or whatever as well. So, which is fantastic. So the more obviously people start to educate themselves and bring awareness to their just general life and their general family, that big things will change. And it sounds like social media is really, really active mm. for this topic right now. I noticed that during Fashion Revolution Week, um, brands and producers are being encouraged to respond with the hashtag I made your clothes uh, to demonstrate transparency in their supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's... consumers are encouraged to use the hashtag who made my clothes. <laughs> and you can write to brands as well and say yeah. who made who made the clothes, who made the clothes yeah. and yeah. ask questions. And like Summer said, get to know the brands and find out more like even if they're a bigger brand they might actually be doing really amazing things mm-hmm. um like even at the legacy summit in sydney they had country road and cotton yeah. on and lots of different industries that are that are yeah. trying to make yeah. changes in such a complex industry yeah. um of, of manufacturing but there's truly amazing things happening the world baptist aid just brought out an ethical fashion report card however um as summer mentioned um, some of these certifications don't take into account the smaller ethical labels who have been, from the word go, doing absolutely everything the right way. Um, those are for the bigger brands, but at the same time, I think sometimes it's important as a consumer to do your own research and find out um, specifically who these smaller brands are. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the more we raise up these brands, these little brands, and support them, um, the quicker we'll have a universal solution to these rather complex juggernaut issues. I know, Kelly, you've got a project coming up you wanted to tell us about as well. Um, yeah, I've got a in? couple. Yeah. I know we don't have much time left. So one of them um, is I'm starting to work with a workshop um, set up by an Australian um, couple in India, and it's in Lucknow in India, and they basically were working there um, and they saw a lot of the poverty in a particular area in Lucknow. And so they set up a, a workshop where they could actually support um, local women prep mostly, um, but obviously men as well. And I'm starting to produce some of my clothing there. So I'm hoping that um, once I put all, my, all these styles up online and also to retailers for wholesale, um, there'll be particular garments that I'll actually make with these ladies um, um, in it's called Xena women so I can send you more information if anyone wants to write to me about it but they do a lot of hand embroidery work and I have some clothing which is part of my bee um, my bee textiles and my bee um, collection as well that I'd like to make there and be able to support them um, as well and with that I'm also doing um, the bee sustainable world World Bee Day um, at the Embassy of Sweden. So it's with Norway, Finland, Denmark and Estonia. Um, so that's on the 19th of May on World Bee Day. So I'll be talking a little bit about um, the direct impact that your clothing has on our little friendly friendly bees. And then we've also got our clothes swap happening as well. And the other thing that I've been working on a little bit with some other Canberra businesses is we're going to start to, it's very new still, so if there's any businesses out there that are doing sustainable things, they don't have to be clothing people, they can be anything. Um, we're starting to put together a platform, so an app with these amazing young um, ANU students where 
businesses businesses can showcase their stuff on the app and then when people go to purchase whatever it is so whether it be you know building supplies or clothing or whatever it is they can choose whether they want to plant a tree and we've been looking at a particular area that we can reforest in the Canberra area where customers can plant the tree and see it on this app so it's like a virtual forest on the app and that we're doing a lot of um, underground work with a landscaper to filtrate the water from that area into basically underground um, creek systems to to look after the trees so it's only new but it'll be happening soon well that's fantastic um so if the listeners wanted to get in touch with any of you ladies and um, maybe find out more about what you're doing after Fashion Revolution Week and um, how to um, maybe continue the conversation. How would they go about doing that? So, Summer, I, I know you have a blog. It's called um, Lady and Tortoise Grey. Tortoise and Lady Grey. Sorry, Tortoise yeah, and Lady so Grey. It's, so it's, um, yeah, just www.tortoiseandladygrey, all spelled out, um, .com. Um, and... I also have two um, books on the topic of sustainable fashion. One's called Six Steps to a Sustainable Wardrobe, which is a practical guide to sort of um, untangling yourself from consumerism and then knowing what choices are sustainable. And then I also have a guide to sustainable textiles. So if people really want to understand which textiles are sustainable and which are not, you can find um, all the information about that on my blog. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn if you just search Summer Edwards. Okay, thanks, Summer. Um, so mine, obviously, you can find me PurePod online, so um, purepod.com.au. Um, I'm also on Facebook and I'm also on Instagram, so PurePod underscore studio. Um, and then I also have ways that you can resell your secondhand um, PurePod items or other organic textile items. And also on LinkedIn, so Kelly Donovan on LinkedIn. Uh, for myself, it's um, you can through my website blog, which is EcoStyles with an S, two words, um, EcoStyles.com.au. Uh, you can also find me on social media, Instagram and Facebook as EcoStyles, or simply Nina Gabor. Uh, Gabor is G-B-O-R, no A. Um, or through my, my clothes swap and styling initiative, um, where that's you know. Uh, the restyling workshops I do as well as the clothes swaps um, or just simply by googling Nina Gabor <laughs> thanks very much thanks very much for coming in today to Behind the Lines on 2XX 98.3 FM coming up well-being thanks very much for everyone it was very interesting we feel pretty good about my op shop compulsion now <laughs>